cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, March 6, Listening to Fighting for the Faith, my name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we, well, we do the comparative work and also keep you apprised of some of the latest religion stories and uh, compare you know the different information or bits of information in those religion stories to the clear word of god okay so uh, once a week we do a light edition of fighting for the faith just so you know today we're going to do our light edition and we're probably going to have a light edition on friday because friday is the day i'm traveling to oslo minnesota and uh, in preparation for uh, saturday's event where I'm going to be uh, teaching from basically from about ten in the morning until four in the afternoon on uh, on biblical discernment. Uh, you know, kind of they have a discernment weekend uh, there at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or Ufta. I think it's a uh, Norwegian by the sounds of it at, uh, in Oslo, Minnesota. So uh, if uh, if you happen to be in and around or within driving distance of Oslo, Minnesota, we'd love to have you out there. So what we're going to do on today's edition is we're going to continue with our lecture series by Dr. Michael Horton on the Great Commission, and we're going to be listening to lectures number 13 and 14. Uh, of particular note is his uh, discussion that he's engaged in regarding the Great Commission and social justice. So Without any further ado, here is Dr. Michael Horton. A three-part series. I'm uh, passionately committed to keeping it to three. Uh, we could spend a lot more time unpacking some of the issues, but a three-part series on evangelism and social justice. 
to what extent is concern, especially for uh, transforming our world or caring for, for uh, those outside of the covenant community is part of the Great Commission. We're gonna, that's going to be a major focus for the next three weeks. Preaching the gospel and, uh, and doing good, the relationship between uh, the ministry of word and sacrament and the ministry of uh, mercy and justice. And so a lot of critical questions that the church is facing today uh, will, will be uh, addressed, at least to some extent or another, by distinguishing between the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And so before we uh, start this uh, three-part series, let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank You that You have given us by Your Son very clear instructions about the nature, purpose, mission, and methods by which Your kingdom is brought into this world and extended and expanded throughout this world until Jesus returns. I pray, Father, that You would uh, encourage us with the words that You have given us already concerning that ministry of uh, Word and Sacrament and the ministry of elders as they oversee our spiritual welfare. Help us now to see the importance, Father, of that holy office of deacon. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A while back, I uh, had a chance to... uh, spent an afternoon with the General Secretary of the World Council of Churches. Not something I do every day. Uh, and uh, I, I asked him, you know, one of their slogans back in, in, I think, the 1970s was, Doctrine Divides, Service Unites. Well, yeah, you know, the Gospel Divides, Law Unites. Uh, that's always been the case. But I asked him... Um, if he still believes that, and if the World Council of Churches still, after uh, these many years, uh, uh, continues to embrace that, and he chuckled and he said, oh my goodness, no. He says, uh, service divides like you wouldn't believe. No, we, we, we have people who think that capitalism is the way forward. Seriously? In the World Council of Churches? Okay. And, and we have people who think Socialism is the way forward. Some people who think socialism is uh, too democratic. Uh, you know, you have all sorts of different views, and it's out there in social, uh, uh, the social order where the churches begin to divide. And then we, we say, hey, we're going to have a conversation about the Nicene Creed, and people start drifting back to the living room and sit down and have a conversation. And he says, no, so we're beginning to see that, that actually doctrine unites. I thought that was, that was interesting, especially at a time when a lot of conservative Protestants are sort of moving in that direction. Deeds over creeds. In a recent issue of Christianity Today, Fuller Seminary President Richard Mao related the story of how he wrote a, an article for Christianity Today while he was still a young man in uh, grad school. It was during the Vietnam War, and he was uh, very disturbed, his conscience was very disturbed about the lack of any serious evangelical engagement except to extol uh, the American uh, involvement in Vietnam and uh, 
to, to uh, uh, take a stand with the military. And he was very much, in his conscience, deeply opposed to this. Carl Henry had just written his book, The Uneasy Conscience of American Fundamentalism. And that book had already caused quite a stir. And so he thought that, that Carl Henry, the editor of the flagship evangelical magazine Christianity Today, might be open to an article he would write against the Vietnam War. Though grateful that Henry was considering the article, Mal recalls, I was troubled, however, by the change he was proposing to my article. This was a period in my life when I had often felt alienated from evangelicalism because of what I saw as its failure to properly address issues raised by the civil rights struggle and the war in Southeast Asia. As a corrective, I wanted the church as church to acknowledge its obligation to speak to such matters. Henry wouldn't budge. Where I insisted it was the church's duty to address these issues directly, Henry wanted me to say it was the Christian's duty. He said, the institutional church, in his letter to Mao, he said, the institutional church has no mandate, jurisdiction, or competence to endorse political legislation or military tactics or economic specifics in the name of Christ. And then Henry went on to quote Paul Ramsey, the Princeton University ethicist and Presbyterian who said, identification of Christian social ethics with specific partisan proposals that clearly are not the only ones that may be characterized as Christian and as morally acceptable comes close to the original New Testament meaning of heresy. At the same time, Henry argued that evangelicals are not only authorized, but commanded to speak to the whole range of human life and human existence wherever the Scriptures are our basis. We uh, proclaim God's clear no, Henry said, to excessive violence, to racial injustice and other serious moral crises. We apply God's word to the civil sphere. Now, there's a civil use of the law too. We proclaim God's law because the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But we don't have any ability to legislate our interpretation of that teaching. Rather, we proclaim a greater judge and a greater judgment than any of the worldly courts. Not being uninterested or passive with respect to the earthly judgments of human courts, but doing that as citizens working alongside non-Christians. Upon reflection, Mal concludes, Henry was right and I was wrong. He goes on to point out, as a, uh, someone raised in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, Abraham Kuyper said this before, and I just never really listened to him, that the church as an organization is tasked strictly with the ministry of word and sacrament and diaconal care, and the church as organism, as people, uh, is tasked with much more than that. And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about here. The Great Commission is very narrow, very specific. The Great Commandment covers a lot of ground. The Great Commission is given to the church as an institution. And the Great uh, uh, Commandment is given to all human beings simply by virtue of being created in the image of God. And so, for example, we're, 
you know, where, where you have bad creeds, you have bad deeds. Now, you also have bad deeds with, with good creeds uh, because we're not consistent. That's called hypocrisy. <laughs> we've seen it. We've done it. Uh, we know what hypocrisy looks like, but bad creeds do generate bad deeds. Uh, we are called to preach the whole counsel of God, and that means that, for example, we, we have every not only right, but responsibility as ministers of the gospel to speak to stewardship of creation. We have plenty of passages on that. We're not the masters of the universe. We're stewards. We're covenant servants. And we've been put in a position of service to, uh, rulership over, but in service to, uh, God's purposes for all of creation, not just for our, uh, our own good and happiness. But can we, can we create climate change policy in the United Reformed Churches in North America? I mean, that's, what's, that's what has been attempted. The Southern Baptist Convention has uh, a whole statement, it's pretty lengthy, on climate change. And I'm scratching my head thinking, uh, wow, um, how, many, how many PhDs in, uh, in, in uh, environmental science would be represented <laughs> at a church uh, synod, at a, at a the, you know. Um, on the other hand, the, the Presbyterian Church in the USA was very confident as well what the position of Jesus is on, on uh, uh, climate change policy. Everybody knew exactly. It's like they had had breakfast with the Lord. And he had just told them, now, write the, do, you never bring a pen. Write, write this stuff down. Write this stuff down, and I want you to, from on high, announce this to the whole body and bind the consciences of all of the people in the churches to embrace this policy. No, we have to, we have to, to distinguish between preaching the whole counsel of God and applying the whole counsel of God in principles and policies that are not required by Scripture itself. And that's where we're going to differ, even among ourselves. It's interesting to get together with URC ministers, even, uh, and, and sit in a room and, and how, get into politics that we would never bring up in the pulpit. Uh, and and uh, you can have in the room, I'm thinking of a very specific uh, evening, uh, have, you have in the room there uh, someone who thinks that uh, President Obama has completely sold out to the right, All the way, <laughs> all the way to someone uh, who thinks that uh, you know it's just a disaster that Ross Perot isn't president. So, you know, you have the the, the conver- they have exactly the same doctrine. Ask them any question about doctrine, and they're, they're, and most passages in Scripture, very little disagreement about those things. How could they differ so much on politics? Well, because policy prescriptions are much narrower and based on judgments of wisdom from common grace, not from directly divinely revealed principles. And so you have two people who really, I think of you know, two friends of mine who uh, get together regularly and uh, just uh, several years ago, they were on opposite sides in uh, the well of the Senate. One of them was uh, pushing through 
President Bush's nominees, defending their nomination before the Senate uh, as Assistant Attorney General. And then on the other side, the person who was uh, the attorney for the Democrats uh, was another friend, uh, and uh, they're both Reformed Christians. So here they, they were tooth and nail, and then afterwards they would go to the pub and, and uh, talk about the doctrines of grace. <laughs> and you say, what's the deal here? Both of them love God and neighbor. Both of them really are seeking the common good. They, their theology is, is right. Both of them are trying to love their neighbors and not just, uh, you know, seek what is best for the evangelical cause. They're trying to love and serve their neighbors, but they have very different views about the best tactical ways of bringing that about, of, of loving and serving their neighbors. And we're going to see that across the board on every major issue that we face. Pontificating on matters beyond its expertise and authority, the church actually loses that considerable spiritual authority it has when it is speaking in the name of God and people recognize that it is based, you know, we're, we're, we're grounding our pronouncements in Holy Scripture. But when we have pronouncements on every conceivable idea that has come into our heads as ministers, we weaken the authority that Christ has given to us. And it's no wonder that people just stop listening and say, you know, Papa, don't preach. You know, this is the, all he does is he sort of spouts off and, and uh, says, says whatever's on his mind. At one extreme is the view that, the, that Christians shouldn't even be interested in the pressing social, political, cultural issues of our day because after all, it's all going to burn and, and it's the late great planet Earth and you know, uh, we need to just uh, throw people a life raft and see how many can get in and, and then just let everything else go by the wayside. On the other hand, you have the view that the church should be making pronouncements that only wise Christians and non-Christians working together should be making in the public square. It's just a matter of history that a bunch of Christians can be really wrong and a bunch of pagans can be really right. It has happened before. Whole periods. Uh, that we could mention. You think of apartheid in South Africa. So much of that was grounded in false teaching in the churches. False teaching and scripture twisting. And the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement will say that it was when the Dutch Reformed Church said apartheid is a heresy that we invented, that we created in the 1850s. Before that, since the, since the Synod of Dort, Orthodox Calvinism had mixed races in church. And then the Pietist missionaries came in in the 1850s and separated the races because churches grow more quickly if they're separate along race, racial lines. Sort of the homogeneous principle of church growth. That, was, that, that separation then led to cultural separation. Apartheid started in the churches. And it was when the Dutch Reformed Church said, that is a heresy. And all the scriptures that we twisted along the way, that was 
eisegesis that was false teaching and we declare that to be a heresy. And Mandela says that that is the day when the Dutch Reformed Church National Synod made that announcement and it was carried all over the media, all over South Africa, apartheid died. That day, Mandela says, apartheid died. It lost its moral character. Because the church was doing what only the church can do. Speak to its unfaithfulness in in the interpretation of Holy Scripture. And it lost its moral authority. One of the places where we really see the importance of mercy ministries is in the diaconate. We've talked about the ministry of word and sacrament. We've talked about the ministry of the elders. All of this very clearly grounded in Scripture and therefore grounded in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to go into all the world preaching the gospel, making disciples by preaching the gospel, baptizing, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And the diaconate belongs to that last section, commanding them to, uh, 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 teaching them to, to observe everything that I have commanded you. Included in that is the diaconate. Now the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is directly parallel to the Sermon on the Mount that, that Moses preached. God delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments form the core of all moral law, which is nothing more or less than the natural law written on the conscience of every person. But then he attached at Mount Sinai, he attached, like he stapled to to that natural law that we all have in Adam, he stapled another set of laws, ceremonial and civil. In creating a theocracy, a geopolitical national theocracy with the kingdom of God associated with one particular nation, Israel. And what has happened now in the New Covenant is, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say, you know, as if he had the authority to do that. You know, only God could say that. That's why the religious leaders didn't miss this. Um, they got, they understood what a lot of Protestant theologians missed. Um, uh, you know, at least the liberal ones. He, he, they knew what he was claiming when he <laughs> was reenacting Moses at Mount Sinai, only this time not saying, this is what I've delivered from the, uh, what was delivered to me from the Lord, but saying, You've heard it said, Exodus 33, uh, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy 6. Uh, I mean, there are passages here. This isn't just what the religious leaders were saying. You have heard it said by God through Moses, but I say. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's still the moral law that is at the core of this, but around it, instead of the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel, you have the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying this is gone. Not one jot or tittle, he says in this sermon. No, not one jot or tittle can be taken away from this. But this is gone. This belongs to the Old Covenant and this belongs 
to the new covenant. And therefore, just as this was given, not as a universal kind of constitution for nations, but just for Israel, this is given just for the constitution of the new covenant community. The Sermon on the Mount is not a blueprint for nations. Rather, it is the constitution, the law part, if you will, the law part of our constitution as the new covenant people of God. The kingdom of Christ is not a revival of the Sinai covenant, as as we heard this morning. It is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant because Christ has fulfilled the Sinai covenant as indeed he's fulfilled the trial that Adam forfeited in the garden. And so it's a spiritual conquest, not a temporal conquest. He's not driving the nations out of the garden or out of the Holy Land. In fact, he says, you're just going to have to turn the other cheek. The persecutors are going to come after you. It's not you going driving the persecutors out, you persecuting the ungodly. They're going to persecute you, and you're just going to have to take it. Because now, in this era, the Father sends rain upon the just and the unjust alike. There is no difference between believer and unbeliever with respect to temporal blessing. So he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Then you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. Church is a strange place. You know, from the playground to national politics, uh, it's you scratch. Uh, if I scratch their back, maybe they'll scratch mine. You know, and there's a there's a a place for this. Let's invite the boss over. Uh, you know, it's not a a a stupid thing to do. If uh, you're uh, the new kid on the block and you invite uh, uh, invite the boss over for dinner and have a nice meal and so forth, that's fine. That's common meal. That's that's all right. Don't ever do that in the church. Jesus say. In my kingdom, it's different. In my kingdom, I want you to go out and look for the riffraff. I want you to go and look for the moral outcast. I want you to go out and look for those who are struggling in life. I want you to go out and look for the people who are not invited to dinners in this age. Specifically, the people who can't repay you. Why? Well, this is connected to the gospel. We're the ones who can't repay him. And he's invited us to the feast. And so we're all in this category. Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What's the right time? He tells us, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies. That's the right time. And that's the right time to invite people to a meal. The right time to invite people to the feast. Those who cannot repay. Those who are, are, are even outcasts and even enemies and are brought near by the blood of Christ. So we're in a gift economy, not a debt economy. And it, it, it is that teaching of the Gospels, the New Testament Gospels, that grounds our understanding of the 
the new kingdom ethics that emerges when Paul talks about uh, the, the ethics of, of the kingdom in 1 Corinthians, for example. Now, how does all of this, what does all of this have to do with the diaconate? Well, it provides the background for the institution of the office. The office of deacon is as essential to the proper discipline of the church as are the offices of minister and elder. It is just as much a part of the essence of the church. The office of deacon is not uh, sort of uh, uh, ancillary. It's not just an appendix to the regular ministry because Christ's office as priest is not an appendix to his office of prophet and king. Christ is prophet, priest, and king, and he exercises that office today through preachers, deacons, and elders. Deacons are the, offer that priestly service. No longer interceding. We don't need, we don't need priests to, to, to offer guilt offerings. That guilt offering has been, sac, uh, uh, has been offered once and for all by our high priest, Jesus Christ. He's the one who intercedes at the Father's right hand. But now our priests serve us. Deacons are the priests who serve us along life's way. Their, their, their service is a, a, is a gift of thanksgiving uh, rather than a gift of, uh, in, uh, for guilt, a sacrifice, an offering for guilt. The institution of the diaconate is reported in Acts 6. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, so the Greek, the, the Gentiles against the Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Stephen and several others were chosen. These were set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, we read in verse 6. This is a real office. They were ordained. Hands were laid on, on them. They were presented to the people as officers. Uh, in fact, we hear echoes of Jesus' words to the apostles as he gave them the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 18:19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And what's the result? The result was, first of all, those poor who were not being served well by the apostles because the apostles were busy with the ministry of word and sacrament were now being taken care of and the apostles could give themselves completely to the ministry of word and sacrament instead of the administration of all of the outward, important but outward necessities of church life. So we read Acts 6-7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. Isn't that wonderful? It was, it was like there was this clog in the pipe. Uh, and, and that clog was diaconal ministry that the ministers were themselves taking on. And once that was unplugged and a whole new pipe was, was laid uh, for that service, both 
of those important functions now were able uh, to be realized and fulfilled. If these were the same office, then Peter and the other apostles would not have seen waiting on tables as a distraction from their ministry. So waiting on tables wasn't a a demeaning thing to say, but what they were saying is that is not what pastors should be doing. Pastors should not be handling the finances of the church. Pastors should not be distributing uh, uh, funds to the poor and to others in need. Uh, 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 Pastors should not be deciding uh, how much to spend on this or that. That's not, their, that's not their responsibility. And having grown up in churches where it, it was thought to be the pastor's responsibility and the pastor's right. Uh, you know, how many times were questions raised uh, about you know, the, maybe the pastor had his hand in the till a little bit? Uh, I mean, nobody knew. Who could, who could, because there was nobody, nobody watching. And... It's a great thing. It's a great thing to have a church polity where pastors are not in charge of the money. It's just good for everybody. Um, the the uh, one of the pictures that people have today is that evangelism, therefore, is word and deed. So the ministry of word and sacrament and social justice. This is, this is what you hear very, very commonly in a lot of evangelical missions. However, what I think we see in Act 6 and we'll see in other places is a little bit different from that. You have evangelism and the deeds or responsibilities that flow out of evangelism. And evangelism is word and sacrament ministry, whereas deeds comes out of the diaconate and Christians living their lives in the world. So in other words, it's not one or the other, but it's also not one and the same. Evangelism is evangelism. Evangelism is, it's not narrowly just telling people the Romans road uh, and, and trying to get them to make a decision for Christ. Evangelism is what happens every week in the assembly of the Lord. Evangelism is making disciples uh, through the preaching of the gospel. The oh man, just I, what I really wanted to talk about, I've run out of time for. Uh, uh, re, now I better not. I better not. Let me just let me just wind up with this, and I'll take a couple questions. The qualifications for deacons uh, are clearly explained in First Timothy three. It's very clearly a different office from the office of elder. There are uh, some churches that have deacons but not elders. Uh, but it's very definitely a different office from the office of elder. 
Uh, in addition to being of upstanding character, they must be told, Paul says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So they have to have to, to uh, they can't be crossing their fingers when they when they sign the confession. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And Paul holds the deacons in such high esteem that he even greets the Philippian church to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Philippians 1.1. With the overseers, pastors and elders, and the deacons. And so you have this parity. They're different offices. But just as, the mind, or just as the soul and the body are both integrated and both are important to the Lord and he will raise both at the last day, so the office of elder, which is primarily uh, devoted to looking out for the spiritual health of the church, is inseparably connected to the office of deacon, which is concerned for looking out for the body. And so there's absolutely no place This is what I'll end with here today. There's absolutely no place for seeing deacons as elders in waiting. There's a tendency to see deacons as sort of junior elders. Uh, From the the pool of deacons, we will pick our elders. You know, as they grow up, maybe you're a little too young to be an elder, but we'll make you a deacon. and what ends up happening in a lot of churches, happily not ours, but in a lot of churches that I've, even, even one I can think of I served, uh, you have, you, you have uh, elders who are basically chosen because they're CEOs or leaders in, in business and industry or, or what have you. And that is dangerous. I mean, it's wonderful to have, all things being equal, if they have every other qualification that's icing on the cake, that they've had that kind of experience. But why do you need business experience to oversee the spiritual welfare of the flock of Christ? Now, you do need some business experience to be a deacon. <laughs> if you can't manage your finances at home, maybe, maybe there's another spot for you other than deacon, uh, you know. I uh, can think of great examples at, at Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, for example, where you, we had uh, deacons who never wanted to be elders. They wanted to be deacons their whole life. That was their calling. That's what they were called to. And they're still deacons now. Uh, I can uh, attest to some really remarkable examples where they took uh, people who, you know, law, credit card debt and all kinds of problems. They, they, they fell into all back taxes, all sorts of issues. They'd come to the deacons asking for, for support. And uh, it's like, wow, you came, uh, you, <laughs> you, you came to the right place and the wrong place, depending on what you're looking for here. Because uh, the deacon, uh, a deacon uh, uh, would be appointed uh, to take this person under his wing and uh, say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you on this budget. We're going to help you. And here, I, the, one of the people I'm thinking of had an, owned an oil company. To pay for this out there in, the, in, 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 the, uh, in society would have, been, and would have been enormous. You would never have gotten somebody. But now, you had, an, you had average people in the church who had access to people like this who would help them put together a plan and then 
tell the deacons we put together a plan. Now let's help them. And, and this is what we need, not what they need. This is what we need in order to make this plan work. We need a bridge loan or we need bridge money here to help them recover and we have them on a track here. Uh, that's wonderful. That's, that's uh, really looking out for the flock in a way that elders don't look out for the flock. Elders and pastors uh, have to be undistracted from their primary focus on the spiritual health of the church, but we're, it is as essential to the Great Commission. This is the point. It's, it's, it is as essential to the Great Commission that the Lord cares for our bodies as that he cares for our souls. And therefore the diaconate is just as essential to the life of the church as pastors and elders, as the ministry of word and sacrament. And so next time I'll talk about just how important Paul saw this when he uh, mentions several times the collections, the collection for the Jerusalem saints that he was taking. And not just as a tangential thing, but how, how Paul saw that as inseparable from his ministry as, as, as an apostle to the Gentiles, bringing back the Gentiles as a fragrant offering and laying them at the feet of the Jews in Jerusalem. Any questions or comments? Clark? Yeah, that's a good question. It is interesting that it, it, it is, it's not written down. There's, there's a lot of, of uh, midrash in, uh, in Reformed churches. Presbyterians write everything down and put it in the Constitution. Uh, <laughs> the Reformed say, well, my grandfather used to say. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the things that I've heard is that, that there's always been the expectation that pastors will move around too. Because you don't want people to become attached to a pastor. You want them to become attached to the ministry, not the minister. And uh, so at least historically, the practice has been, you know, uh, people moving around after a certain period of time. I wonder if that just sort of changed and, and yet the, the offices of elder and deacon still were... were uh, seem a little bit more transition uh, in more transitional terms. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, uh, I'll look into it because it, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That's a great point. That's a great point. Well, Clark might say to put words in your mouth. Yeah, but he's still doing his vocation, but but at, at another church, 
uh, why in, in a particular church do you have such rotation. But I, I think that's a, that uh, certainly is, uh, is a... Yeah, it does take a lot when it's not your full-time... <laughs> Yeah. As much of a break for yeah, break break for you as as yeah, as anything. Well, I think you can always take a take a break and come back as a one year. And yeah, and then you can come back and. The north. Our church plants. Con- Oh yes, yeah, very definitely. In fact, one of the things that uh, that will become clearer with that offering that Paul takes, and that's mentioned in three of his epistles, is that you know when we think of the connectional nature of the church, that the church is not only local churches, but the classes, and then the uh, synod, not higher but broader assemblies. Uh, when we think of that connectional government that in Acts 15, for instance, settled a doctrinal dispute, little, we often overlook the fact that also in Acts you have, and in these examples I'll be talking about next week, the same church polity of connectional government with respect to diaconal ministry. Uh, you had local churches, broader assemblies of, of churches, and then the broadest assemblies of churches, uh, making sure that, that people were cared for, uh, not only in particular local churches, but in, in the broader body of Christ. Uh, I'll talk about that later, sort of in the light of what Paul says in his collection. I think this is something where we have a lot of work to do. Ironically, in the age of Internet, we are... We, we have fallen far behind where Reformed and Presbyterian people were just a few generations ago with world relief of Christians in, in difficulty. Ironically, in an age of Internet, we're less connected than previous generations were. If, if Christians in Nigeria hiccuped we, uh, or sneezed, we, we uh, caught a cold in, in uh, North America. That's less true now as we become a lot more insular and kind of focused on our own local context. Um, should local churches diaconally or classes diaconally take on uh, other classes and local churches, for instance, in Haiti or in uh, part of the world where there's great, uh, great disaster or especially persecution? What, are, what, what do local churches in North America do that is comparable to what Paul did with that collection that we'll be talking about next week?
Sure. Yeah. 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 Sure. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that's that's uh uh you, you know you think of the difference between I uh and I'll quit with this. I've gone over time um at a uh uh conference at Princeton there was uh great interchange uh between a a Kuyperian uh, from the Free University of Amsterdam in the Freimacht Church, and they were, they they saved they're the they're more, the ones who more than anyone else in the Netherlands hid Jews during the Holocaust, and uh, he was taught and they're our sister church in the URC. They uh, he 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 was saying the criticism that he had of of Karl Barth and that his parents and grandparents had of of the teaching of Karl Barth was the Barman Declaration uh, was saying, Hitler, take your hands off of Christ's church. And they thought that was so noble. And so, you know, taking a stand. And it was taking a stand. Take your hands off of Christ's church. But he says, we Dutch Reformed were saying, Hitler, take your hands off of God's world. <laughs> and I think that there is an important... An important uh, trail of that, you know, two kingdoms in all, we still in, in Reformed churches uh, have always emphasized very strongly, even more I, I would say than, than, uh, than Lutherans, the, the sovereignty of God over all spheres of life. Now, he rules the, the, the secular state at his church in different ways, through different means, toward different ends. 
but he is sovereign over both. And so, uh, uh, you know, we can't just say that the church only pertains to my private kingdom of the soul. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But on the, on the specifics of what you raise, Eric, we'll, we'll get to that after the discussion of, of deacons and what we do as mercy ministries and justice in the church. That's what I'm going to do here. First focus on caring for bodies as well as souls in the church and then ask the question, is there anything that we're mandated to do then for those outside of the body of Christ? All right. Sorry to keep you. All right, we're going to pause right there uh, between lectures and uh, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. 
Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. <laughs> Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if the pastor's not giving you the goods. You know, Christ and him crucified for us in sound biblical doctrine. You got it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says uh, donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. 
800-256-6038. Okay, here's the uh, next lecture in the series on uh, the Great Commission. Here's Dr. Michael Horton. All righty, we are uh, focusing on the charitable responsibility of the church, first to its own members and then the larger question of what the relationship is or responsibility is of the church to those outside of the covenant community. It's that second question I'll be focusing on next week, but this week the subject is the responsibility of uh, the church to take care of the temporal needs of its own members. I just saw the latest issue of Christianity Today had a, a poll, and it was online, so it's not exactly scientific, but an online poll, uh, and only 30% of those who responded in the poll, 30% of readers of, of Christianity Today magazine, only 30% said that uh, that they were aware... It, it, Either, either that, their, that their church had or that they were aware that their church had any kind of care for those who have physical needs in the congregation. Only 30%. But 65% knew that there were missions in the, in the church budget for uh, 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 world-transforming activities in, in various ways uh, giving to cultural concerns and political concerns. Uh, but at least according to the people who are readers of Christianity Today, many of them pastors, only 30% were aware that there were diaconal uh, 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 structures in place for the care of the temporal welfare of the saints. And so this is, this is a good time for us to talk about the importance of diaconal ministry. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Therefore, uh, it isn't just our souls that we're concerned about on Sunday morning and evening. It's, it's the whole person that we're concerned about throughout the whole week, uh, throughout the whole lifetime. We are anticipating the day when the whole earth will be full of the glory of God and uh, the church, the kingdom of Christ in this present phase is not just concerned with the soul. It is concerned with the person. And uh, therefore, the diaconate was established so that A, the ministry of word and sacrament could go on unimpaired and so that the physical, temporal welfare of the saints would be taken care of as well. Um, it would be... You know, it would, it would have been easy for, for Peter simply to have said, good grief, I'm tired of it. You know, I, I, I'm not called to wait on tables. Uh, this is not something that is in, in the purview of my ministry. I'm called to preach the word, to pray. Uh, I am called to plant churches. I am not called to take care of people's physical needs. He could have just said, well, that's not, you know, that's not what the church is for anyway. The church is just there to take care of people's souls. But he didn't. And he uh, established, uh, uh, under Christ's authority, the diaconate as a separate office from that of pastor, teacher, and elder, so that the body as well as the soul would be cared for. Now, we know that Paul was obsessed with the gospel and with 
getting that gospel to the Gentiles, which is why the whole book of Acts has as one of its subplots Paul burning himself out to get to Rome. He's the, the apostle to the Gentiles, and so he, he, he starts in Jerusalem, the city of God, the court of the, 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 uh, uh, the holy place, and moves, as if you're, you're thinking of geography being the temple, moves out of the holy place into the court of the Gentiles, even from Zion to the ends of the earth, the seat of Gentile power in Rome. And that's where, he's, he, that's where he has his eyes set. That's where he wants to uh, end his ministry, as long as the Lord will give him strength to do so. But he was obsessed with something else um, that I had, I've missed for many years, and then it has hit me in the last several years as I've been uh, looking at some of the passages in Romans and First and Second Corinthians uh, and elsewhere, some of those passages, you know, at the back of the, le- of the letter, sort of like the P.S. that you just read over. Oh, we're finished with the doctrine now. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've gotten, gotten past the, the doctrine and the application and the doxology, whatever. And now it's, tell Alice, hello, she left her socks in my dryer. Uh, you know, um, anytime she wants to stop by, she can get them. And you just sort of ignore all of that stuff as having nothing really to do. It, you know, that, that won't preach. So uh, you just leave that out of the letter. But it's great stuff and important stuff, and I've seen it as important more in recent years. In Corinth, we'll start in 1 Corinthians, uh, divided into factions over leadership personalities, over personal tastes and styles, over e- socioeconomic standing and position. Divided just exactly according to the demographic of Corinthian culture and society. The church was bizarre in Corinth. Uh, you had people uh, you know, fighting over the food and the wine uh, uh, during the um, love feast and the, and the communion. You had uh, 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 people uh, living in... in uh, uh, weird relationships with family members. I mean, it, it was just a strange place. There was very little discipline. And really, you, you look at the whole of 1 Corinthians, and it's a, it's a call to reform the church according to its three marks. He starts out in the first two chapters of Corinthians recalling them to the gospel, Christ and Him crucified. Uh, he, he speaks especially in chapters uh, 10 and 11 about the importance of restoring integrity to the sacrament of Holy Communion. Uh, Discipline in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, as well as in chapters 10 and and 12, you you have the three marks of the church needing correction, needing greater uh, reflection there in the life of the Corinthian church. But instead of a choir, the church had become a stage for virtuoso performances like American Idol. It was the first century uh, ecclesiastical version of American Idol. You know, everybody wanted to be a, a star. Um, basically, 1 Corinthians then is a, is a call to reform the church in terms of these visible marks of faithful preaching of the gospel, proper administration of the sacraments, especially the supper, 
and discipline in the worship and life of the church so that it all functions again as a body. And it's within that context that Paul speaks of a project that was near and dear to his heart, a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. In chapter 16, the first four verses we read, Now concerning the collection for the saints, now again, this is the part usually I, where I drop off. I kind of, you know, eh, 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 eh. you know. I, now as far as the collection, of, all right, he's talking about the offering. Now I can, I can uh, go back to Galatians or, or uh, Romans or something. Now this is very important. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. We learn several things from this uh, example. First, the collection was occasioned by desperate need. Desperate need. It was during the 40s when there was an embargo against Jerusalem and uh, a number of, of Jewish zealots had mounted another campaign to try to overthrow Rome and Rome just did what Rome did when things like that happened. Put as many crosses up with as many Jews on it as they possibly could to let everybody know they meant business. This doesn't happen under our watch. Anybody else? Anybody else? And they closed everything off, all the roads, food could not get to Jerusalem, and people were starving. And uh, this, this is the period in which James, for instance, is, is uh, upbraiding people in the Jewish congregation uh, for not caring enough about the poor. Uh, and still observing standards of uh, you know, rich people get the best seats and, and that sort of thing. You know, how can you do that, especially at a time like this, when everybody's suffering and the poor especially are suffering to the point of starvation and death? And uh, so it was, it was a very, it was provoked by, by genuine need in the Jerusalem church. There was also need throughout the diaspora, that is the, uh, where Jews were in other cities, but Jerusalem was embargoed. Jerusalem was cut off from all uh, uh, outside assistance, and so it was particularly uh, dire in that city. And uh, second, the collection was especially formal. It wasn't just another collection taken on the first day of the week. That's a phrase that we come across periodically for the normal collection. This wasn't a normal Sunday collection. Um, Paul assumes that th there, there is some gen general familiarity with this project, that, that they know something about it. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Concerning this thing that you must know about, because we've all been talking about it quite a bit. Third, the collection was Catholic. That is universal. It wasn't just uh, an, uh, an idea that the Jerusalem church came up with. It wasn't just an idea that the church in Galatia came up with or the church in Corinth came up with and their local diaconate administered it. It was, it was a Catholic uh, concern. 
the concern particularly for the Jewish saints who were starving in Jerusalem was the concern of the whole body of Christ. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, said the Apostle Paul. It's an apostolic injunction for the whole church. Fourth, although all churches are to participate, each collection was local to be taken up each Lord's Day in every church And Paul even defers to the diaconate of the local churches by saying, if you think that it is a good idea, I will come with them. I will accompany them. But deacons will be sent as representatives uh, when this gift is finally brought to the Jerusalem saints. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So he's not just... Uh, he, he's not a pope. He is, he is uh, uh, placing himself... The, the injunction is apostolic, so the churches have to do what he says. But even as an apostle, he defers to the jurisdiction of the local church uh, and its diaconate by saying, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter, so much for the church not having any formal structure... Uh, just a bunch of Christians getting together. and No, it's all, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And he adds, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. If it seems advisable. You guys d- determine whether it's advisable that I go along. And then he refers to this collection also in Romans 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So you're very good. You not only only know what you believe and why you believe it, but you're able to teach others. It's It's a teaching church. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Huh. Okay, so the Gentiles themselves are an offering. He's the high priest, and he is sacrificing the Gentiles, not as a guilt offering, but as a thank offering on the altar by his ministry. He's using, you know, it's a metaphor, uh, alluding to the sacrificial system uh, in his ministry of presenting the Gentiles as acceptable before the Father. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem... And all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So I'm just driving around with this, this cement truck, looking for, for dirt that doesn't have any concrete on it yet. <laughs> and I'm going to pour wherever I can from here all the way around the Roman Empire, until I wind my way to Rome itself and stand before Caesar. 
Well, yeah, but he's talking about making the Gentiles an offering, porting your shoehorning, you know, this offering thing, uh, this general collection into a passage that's talking about making the Gentiles an offering. Yeah, but read on. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Calvin has a great riff on this uh, point here where he says, you know, it's not charity. It's justice. They owe it to them. And now why? Why Why did the Gentiles in these other cities owe it to the Jerusalem saints? Why was it not charity but justice? Well, Paul says, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, because salvation is from the Jews, if Gentiles are those wild branches grafted onto the vine of Israel, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave from, for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is an important deal for him. This is part of, this collection of money from the saints, is tied up for Paul with the collection of Gentiles for God. Dropping the Gentiles at the feet of the Father in the heavenly Zion is symbolized in this act, this universal act of justice for the saints in Jerusalem who are starving as Gentiles now are bringing their gifts even as Gentiles brought Jesus' gifts as he was lying in the manger. In other words, Paul's saying, when I talk about the partition being torn down between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews, when I talk about in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, when I talk, talk like that, am I really getting through? Because, you know, the, the you, uh, uh, Jews are having so many problems with the Gentiles, uh, you know, you, really, are they, are they part of the group or do they have to become Jews first? Uh, you Gentiles are kind of uh, hard on the Jews. You really believe that this wall has been torn down. And this gift, this collection that Paul is taking is for him a very, very concrete yes. Put your money where your mouth is. Do you believe the gospel or not? And the, 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 that, that Jews and Gentiles are one, one new people in Christ is part of the gospel. That is part of the gospel. And so this collection is not a part of the gospel, but it is the reasonable response to the gospel. It makes sense, especially in the light of Acts 15 and what happened there with the council of Jerusalem and the apostles with the elders deciding that the Judaizers have no argument and henceforth their position that we've been hearing about uh, uh, as the pastor's been going through Galatians. That is 
uh, uh, that position that Paul lays out in Galatians is the official Catholic teaching of the church. Then put your money where your mouth is. That's what Paul's saying here to the, to the Gentiles, especially in these outlying cities. Paul concludes by asking for prayer that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's how important it was. I really want to I really want to come not just in a good attitude, you know, put me in a good attitude. Uh, this is not just Jew- Jewish guilt. You know, oh, I you know, if you want me to come happy, <laughs> or I can come sad. He's not doing that. He's saying, look, if I'm going to come with joy in you and who you are in Christ, then before I come, make sure that my joy is complete by completing this offering, by doing this with, uh, with, with open hearts, with generous hearts. Why is this collection so central to Paul's apostolic mission? Well, his priestly ministry of offering up the Gentiles as a sacrifice, not of atonement, but of thanksgiving to God the Father in the Son and through the Spirit, is expressed in tangible, material, physical terms, not only in baptism and the Lord's Supper, but through this offering. This offering isn't a sacrament, uh, but for Paul, it, it, is, it, is, it is certainly a sign. It is a sign to the churches and to the world of what God has done here in Jesus Christ. What an amazing, what an amazing testimony this was, even to the Romans. Jews, especially in Jerusalem, were not likely to take any aid from a Gentile. But we have to realize just how big a deal this was. Um, this was a situation where it was the greatest indignity imaginable that you needed to take a handout from your oppressors. And so the Jews would rather starve than take a handout from their oppressors. They had dug in their heels. No Gentile hand is going to extend any assistance to me or my family. And so now you have Gentiles bringing a gift. <laughs> and this is, this is harder for the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, to receive than it was for the Gentiles to give. Everybody, everybody's going to be uncomfortable this day. It, it's it's going to be uh, very... Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, quiet moments here when this, when this offering appears. Who knows what people are going to say. But then in uh, Romans 15, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells the Roman Christians, you are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, but you need a stronger admonition to care for the saints. And this was probably as much of a test, as I say, uh, for the Jewish believers as it was for the Gentiles. Um, 
There would have been members that day when Paul showed up with all the deacons, representative deacons from all of the mostly Gentile churches. There would have been people in that congregation who were at the heart, at the core of the agitation against Paul. Who would have insisted at the Council of Jerusalem that no one be admitted to the Lord's table who didn't keep kosher. There would have been people at that meeting receiving that money who would have made terrible uh, uh, remarks about including Gentile dogs in the fellowship of the church without, without them being circumcised. And now, here come a bunch of people, uncircumcised, hot dog eating, you know, uh, uh, you know, with haggis on their breath, uh, come walking in with a treasure, with a treasure for their brothers and sisters. A new creation had dawned. Even people who didn't have any money in their own churches. Here comes Paul, flanked by representatives of, of, of poorer churches in the rest of the world, carrying a treasure to lay at the feet of suffering brothers and sisters. Nothing drives home the gospel and challenges spiritual arrogance more than being destitute, even physically, and depending on the kind, kindness of foreigners. And yet that day, those Jewish believers and the Gentile believers realized that Foreigner no longer has anything to do with whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody had to kind of adjust to grace, to gift. Everybody had to get used to this, this new order, not of credit, but of gift. Just outright gift. So what did the Corinthians do when Paul finally came around for this collection? Uh, we... we uh, happily uh, get a, a, a glimpse, actually, in 2 Corinthians. Now, we're missing the actual 2 Corinthians, so this is actually, our 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians. Uh, so we don't know what happened in the, in the, uh, in the meantime, but uh, in 2 Corinthians, we find out uh, a little bit about what happened. Paul provokes the Corinthians to jealousy by recounting the generosity of the Macedonian churches. This has been a pastoral strategy ever since. Uh, now the Macedonian churches were known for their poverty, for their struggling. But Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They even were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this relief of the saints. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. This act of grace. And so Paul tells the Romans... You know, basically, you know, you, you got a lot of theology, your doctrine right, you can teach each other. That's terrific, it's wonderful, but he says, how generous are you in taking care of each other? 
He says you must stop thinking of this collection as a tax. It is not an exaction, but make it a willing gift. Chapter 9, verse 5. He says that the Corinthians had excelled in knowledge. Now it was time for them to excel in generosity. Chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that through His poverty you might become rich. In other words, Paul is saying, the logic of the Gospel demands this. It's not the law that demands this. It's the logic of the Gospel itself that fills up fills us with gratitude of a particular nature. Namely, we received all of this gratis because someone else had to become poor for us so that we could become rich. That is our religion. Our whole faith is founded on that fact. And therefore, the poor need the rich and the rich also need the abundance of gifts that the poorer members bring to the body. The first Christians were not an early communist society. Each person gave freely. That's why Paul says it's not a tax, it's not an exaction, but it's a generous gift. But they gave freely precisely because the laws and government of that secular society were not ultimate. Uh, They gave to Caesar what is Caesar's, but then they gave abundantly and generously uh, for the service of the saints. There's not a word about making this practice public policy, but it was a great witness to the Caesars and, uh, and the citizens, their fellow citizens in the empire. We see, I mean, there's a danger here, I think, every, when we come to passages like this of spending more time on explaining how it wasn't communism than actually exegeting the text, what it was. It was incredible generosity. Oh, they weren't communists. All right, fine. Say it once. You don't have to keep saying. What was it? You know, they gave freely, but yes, they gave freely. And there were no needs. We read that in Acts 2 about the, the, uh, uh, the early Jerusalem saints. There weren't needs because if, if, anyone, had, if anyone had a problem, then there was, there was somewhere to go. There was uh, every part supplied what was lacking in the body. And so in a real sense, it's not charity but justice. Not the justice that is appropriate for the kingdoms of this age with the police to back it up, but the justice that is a foretaste of the age to come. The saints shared Christ in common through baptism. They shared Christ in common at the Lord's table. How could they not share their clothing, their cars, their food, uh, their resources, their time, their energy, whatever was needed to supply the needs of the saints? And this was not just the local churches. This was also this was also local churches linking up arm in arm with each other for the purpose of relieving a church that was particularly distressed, when one part of the web feels, or one part of the body feels pain, the rest of the body comes rushing in to supply the blood. And uh, that's, that's what the early church experienced. 
It's also something very much that was experienced uh, with the Reformation. There was a recovery of diaconal ministry in the Reformation, especially the Reformed wing of it. Um, uh, Calvin and the other pastors in Geneva turned the uh, monks and nuns into deacons and deaconesses. The whole city was just flooded with these, these uh, nuns and uh, monks uh, running around in in white uniforms with red crosses instead of uh, uh, monk and, and nun habits because they were actually uh, basically relieving the welfare of the saints who were flooding in as refugees fleeing persecution from all over the, all over the, the uh, empire. And so there's this history of you know, when, when one part is suffering, when the Christians are suffering in Italy... We provide. When they're suffering in Saudi Arabia, we say, what do you need? So whatever we do for those outside the church, which I'll talk about next week, we better, we, we better be sure that we're supplying the troops in, in the church itself, that we're caring for the saints in the church itself. The, at the highest scholarly estimates, the highest scholarly estimates, 100,000 Christians were martyred under the Caesars in the early church, thrown to the lions. 100,000. That's a lot. Let's not downplay it. That's a lot. But in the last several years, 2 million Christians have been martyred in the world for the Christian faith. In the last several years, 2 million. And today, this very day that we're standing here right now, sitting here today, 200 million people, Christians, around the world are under the threat of being arrested or persecuted or executed for the faith. 200 million. And so I think we need to... We need to not ask about the need. <laughs> Is it necessary for diaconates to come together and care for the saints? But how? How do we do it? We're facing something very similar today. If anything, on a grander scale to what Paul was facing here with the Jerusalem saints who were under threat. And so, it, it, you know, uh, you know, what if local churches adopted churches in, you know, a church in Haiti uh, after the earthquake uh, for, for rebuilding the material uh, structures and caring for the physical needs of the saints there, as well as, uh, you know, sending, uh, se- sending uh, uh, pastoral support to encourage the saints for a period of time, short-term missionaries, that sort of thing. To think more about the body of Christ in connectional covenantal terms as our ecclesiology teaches. And not just in terms of what happens, as important as it is, what happens locally in each uh, of our congregations. Okay, uh, so then Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. Or Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You have shown us the greatest hospitality. For You so loved the world that You gave Your only begotten Son, Your priceless gift for our salvation. And Father, because He became poor, we are now rich in spiritual blessings. And as You and Your providence bless us with material blessings, I pray that we would give of our time and money, our talents, our friendship, uh, in all of the, the ways that we can supply the needs of others and contribute to the welfare of the saints. Here at home, here in this church, and then looking around to see where we can link up arms with those church with whom we are, churches with whom we are already in fellowship. Help us, Father, to be in fellowship in body as well as soul, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.